Hello, and welcome to this Ropes and Gray podcast. My name is Dan O'Connor, and I'm a partner in the litigation practice. I also co-lead the firm Securities and Future Enforcement Group, and I'm a former SEC trial attorney. I'm joined today by Jason Brown, a partner in our asset management group. Jason and I work together often with private fund investment advisors on SEC examination and enforcement investigations. Last month, the SEC's Office of Compliance Inspections and Examinations, OC, published a risk alert offering its observations and guidance on compliance issues for registered investment advisors that manage private equity funds and hedge funds. While the alert did not reveal anything entirely new, it provides a valuable inside look into deficiencies that the SEC has identified in this space over the last several years. On today's podcast, we'll be discussing the SEC's risk alert and providing our own observations based on the practical experience that we've gained from representing clients in this industry. With that, I'll turn it over to Jason to provide a summary of the SEC's alert. Thanks, Dan. For starters, the risk alert addresses compliance deficiencies observed by OC in three general areas. One, conflicts of interest. Two, expenses and three, codes of ethics, including material non-public information, or MNPI. While we will unpack each of these areas, it's helpful to lay out the sections of the Advisors Act at play here in order to set the stage. Under Section 206 of the Advisors Act, an investment advisor must either eliminate or make full and fair disclosure of all conflicts of interest that may induce the advisor to provide clients with advice that is not disinterested. A full and fair disclosure must be sufficiently specific so that a client is able to understand the material fact or conflict of interest and make an informed decision whether to provide consent. Advisors must also comply with Rule 20648, which prohibits investment advisors from, one, making any materially untrue statements or omissions to any investor or prospective investor in a pooled investment vehicle, or two, engaging in fraud, deceit, or manipulation with respect to any investor or prospective investor in a pooled investment vehicle. Finally, Rule 20647 requires advisors to adopt and implement written policies and procedures reasonably designed to prevent violations of the Advisors Act. Turning to the specific deficiencies highlighted in the risk alert, OC first addressed conflicts of interest. The alert lists approximately a dozen types of conflicts of interest that they believe have been inadequately disclosed by some advisors. First, OC highlighted that advisors did not provide adequate disclosures for conflicts caused by investing client funds at different levels of the capital structure of the company. OC also highlighted certain conflicts that can arise based on agreements or relationships with limited partners. For example, The alert highlights that some advisors fail to disclose the existence of investors with preferential liquidity terms or investors with pre-existing ownership interests and investments recommended to clients. Advisors also fail to disclose various financial relationships between the advisor and select investors or clients, including special relationships with seed investors and special relationships with investors that provided financing to the advisor or its clients that also had economic interests in the advisor. Additionally, OC highlighted inadequate disclosures related to fund restructurings and secondary transactions. Namely, OC found that advisors purchased fund interests from investors at discounts without disclosing the value of the fund interests. 
Advisors did not provide adequate disclosure of options during restructurings, and advisors required secondary purchasers to agree to a staple. Right, Jason. We also saw this issue in a recent enforcement case for a client. It can be very difficult because advisors at the end of what is otherwise a very successful fund are trying to provide liquidity and buy out some limited remaining assets. And valuation of those assets at end of fund life can be a tricky issue. It's important to make sure that GPs provide their limited partners the most up-to-date data as this new information comes in on the assets that are being purchased, as well as describing clearly how the general partner benefits from any such transactions. For many of these transactions, what we've seen that a valuation date is selected, but we know time marches on and the general partner needs to keep its eye on whether the value of the acquired assets has increased before the transaction closes. Thanks, Dan. So OC also described conflicts related to investment allocation. Specifically, OC highlighted situations where advisors allocated limited opportunities to new clients, higher fee-paying clients, proprietary accounts, or proprietary controlled clients. Additionally, OC highlighted situations where advisors allocated securities at different prices or in apparently inequitable amounts among investors. OC addressed inadequate disclosures related to service providers and cost rates. With respect to service providers, the alert highlights situations where the advisor failed to disclose service agreements entered into between portfolio companies and affiliates of the advisor. Incentive payments received by advisors from discount programs for portfolio companies and situations where the advisor did not follow its disclosures regarding affiliated service providers. For example, stating in disclosure that terms would be market, but not confirming the terms would be market. With respect to cross trades, the alert highlights the importance of using a trade price that represents fair value. So, Jason, once again, this cross-trade issue is also something that's been a focus in some recent enforcement cases and something that we've helped firms address. As we've discussed, this issue combines the SEC's love of big data with some fairly easy-to-observe rule violations and helping design systems to make sure these issues are avoided, traders understand the rules, uh, and the relevant cases is something that you and I have helped a number of firms address. Thanks, Dan. Finally... OC also addressed co-investment activity, including situations where advisors did not follow their disclosed processes for allocating co-investment opportunities or enacted agreements to provide co-invest opportunities to certain investors without disclosing those arrangements to all investors. So, Jason, what do these deficiencies related to conflict of interest mean for investment advisors? What are some of the practical things uh, that we can think about? So most of the deficiencies that the risk alert has highlighted are old news. As with all conflicts, advisors typically meet their fiduciary duties with respect to these issues through fulsome disclosures. And as you know, over the past few years, our clients have greatly improved their disclosures. In light of this, together with the fact that certain advisors have discontinued their practice of engaging in certain conflicts, we have not seen many of these deficiencies recently. They were much more common three or more years ago. That said, in light of the risk alert, we recommend that clients determine whether they are engaging in any of these activities, and if so, confirm that they have disclosure on point. However, while the types of conflicts on OC's radar are not new, we have seen the staff move on from its inquiry into whether there is disclosure of the relationship 
to confirming whether the advisor is complying with the specific disclosure. This transition is most notable, though certainly not unique to, service providers. As most advisors now include disclosure of affiliated service providers, OC is looking to confirm whether advisors are complying with the disclosure they have provided. For example, that the nature of the services and personnel providing the services are the same as those disclosed. And as noted above, whether the services are provided consistent with market terms. Jason, the risk alert also focuses on inadequate disclosures related to fees and expenses that might violate Section 206 or Rule 206.4-8. What can you tell us about that? Well, that's right, Dan. Uh, the alert details four categories of fee and expense issues. Allocation of fees and expenses, use of operating partners, valuation practices, and application of offsets. Looking first at the allocation of fees and expenses, the SAF's observations are not surprising. OC found that advisors allocated shared expenses, such as broken deal, due diligence, annual meeting, or consultant and insurance costs, among the advisor, its client, employee funds, and co-invest vehicles in a manner inconsistent with disclosures or applicable policies and procedures. Additionally, Additionally advisors charge clients, clients for expenses not, not permitted by the relevant, by the relevant fund, fund operating agreement, fail to comply with contractual limits on expenses, and fail to follow travel and entertainment policies. As to operating partners, the alert repeats the well-understood issues of adequate disclosures regarding the role and compensation of individuals providing services to the fund or portfolio company. As you know, operating partners in this context refers to individuals who provided services to the fund or portfolio companies, but are not employees of the advisor and who are therefore not compensated by the advisor. Absent disclosure, this can lead to investor confusion about who would bear the costs associated with operating partners' services. In terms of valuation, OC found that advisors failed to value client assets in accordance with the advisor's valuation process or disclosure to clients. In some cases, the staff observed that this failure to value a private fund's holdings in accordance with the disclosed valuation process led to overcharging management fees and carried interest because such fees were based on inappropriately overvalued holdings. Finally, OC found numerous issues with portfolio company fees and offsets. Advisors failed to calculate offsets in accordance with the terms of fund documents, including by allocating fees across fund clients, some of which do not pay management fees, thereby reducing the offset amount, and by failing to offset portfolio company fees paid to an affiliate of the advisor that were required to be offset. Advisors also failed to track fees paid by portfolio companies to the advisor or its personnel that would require offsets and in some cases, also charged accelerated monitoring fees. Jason, there's been a number of cases in this area. Are any of these deficiencies related to fees and expenses at all surprising? And is there any one area where we've seen particular cause for concern among our clients? Well, Dan, similar to the conflicts of interest deficiencies, most of these are old news, and in many cases, really old news. The one area that continues to be a hot topic is allocation of fees and expenses. The SEC is looking carefully at shared expenses to confirm that all parties that enjoy a particular service or investment bear the related expenses. In addition, similar to the issue we just discussed relating to service providers, 
While most clients have good operating partner disclosure at this point, the SEC has been testing carefully whether the actual arrangements are consistent with the disclosure. And to answer your question about any particular area of concern, we have certainly seen an uptick in questions from OC to our clients related to valuation. Though I would say that the issue we have seen is slightly different than how the alert portrays it. For example, we have seen pointed questions and some deficiencies whether investments have been appropriately written down for purposes of calculating management fees. These types of questions may arise from a steep decline in the equity value of an investment or restructuring when significant assets of an investment are transferred away. Jason, it sounds like as the market continues through an incredibly volatile period and some advisors may be confronted with these steep write-downs, we could expect to see more of these valuation-type concerns becoming front and center in OC exams. I know in prior enforcement cases, we have seen this be a area of significant focus as well. And the saving grace for firm has been their ability to demonstrate a documented process around valuation consistent with their fund documentation and strong disclosure in quarterly and annual financial statements. That's correct, Dan. Finally, the risk alert highlights code of ethics issues that might violate Rule 204A1, what's commonly referred to as the code of ethics rule, or Section 204A of the Advisors Act. As relevant background, Section 204A of the Advisors Act requires registered investment advisors to maintain and enforce written policies and procedures reasonably designed to prevent the firm or its employees from misusing material non-public information. Rule 204A1 is promulgated under Section 204A and provides that a registered investment advisor must establish and enforce a written code of ethics that requires individuals identified as access persons to report their personal securities, holdings, and transactions. Dan, what deficiencies did the risk alert highlight with respect to policies and procedures relating to MNPI and the advisor's code of ethics? Well, with respect to Section 204A, OC found that advisors did not have adequate policies and procedures to address the risks posed by their employees interacting with a number of groups. First, insiders of publicly traded companies. Second, individuals associated with expert networks, meaning outside consultants. And third, value-added investors, uh, what we would put into groups such as corporate executives or financial professional investors that have information about investments. Advisors also failed to address risks of employees obtaining MNPI through their ability to access office space or systems of the advisor or affiliates that might have MNPI. And similarly, they failed to address risks of employees with access to MNPI about issuers and public securities in connection with a pipe transaction, a private investment in public equity. With respect to deficiencies related to the code of ethics rule, OC found that advisors did not adequately enforce trading restrictions on restricted securities or enact policies that address adding and removing securities from the restricted lists. Advisors also had issues with enforcing gift and entertainment policies and failed to identify certain individuals as access persons. Finally, OC highlighted that advisor personnel failed to submit reports on time or submit transactions for preclearance. So Dan, what does this all mean for investment advisors? 
Well, Jason, we've seen the MMPI procedure deficiencies arise more frequently for hedge fund managers, but they do also come up from time to time for other private fund managers. And we've also seen a real uptick in enforcement focus in this area as well, with a recent Aries case as a clear example of how these enforcement matters play out in the private fund space. In light of the increased use of pipes in recent months, it's important to make sure you have solid procedures around controlling MNPI concerns if you're going to do a pipe transaction. There is a real focus, of course, in terms of how you deal with trading on a name that is on otherwise found on your restricted list. The lesson on the code of ethics deficiencies is that you have flexibility in crafting the policies. So make sure that you can comply with the framework that you create. While most firms have good procedures for adding issuers to the restricted lists, what we have seen is a number of clients that follow a more ad hoc approach in removing issuers from the list. And as a result, have issuers on the list long after any trading restrictions are needed. Finally, when identifying people as access persons, it's important to consider the risks of making such determinations in an overly conservative manner. The question you need to ask yourself is, are you really in a position to supervise the applicable person? And does such a determination create a fee or expense issue? Well, thanks for providing that overview, Dan. That's all we have time for today. Thanks everyone for listening. For more information, please visit our website at www.ropesgray.com. You can also subscribe and listen to this series wherever you regularly listen to podcasts including on Apple, Google, and Spotify. And of course, if we can help you navigate any of these challenges, please don't hesitate to get in touch.